Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. As the vaccine rollout continues to stumble, many are getting frustrated at their place in line or lack of available doses. Enter vaccine tourism. It's how the super rich are beating you to the vaccine. In Florida, there were reports of rich Canadians and Venezuelans crashing the state to get their shots. But in London, there's an exclusive lifestyle and travel service called Knightsbridge Circle that has been organizing trips to Dubai and Abu Dhabi for their clients to get vaccinated. For more on how money can buy the vaccine, we'll speak to Oscar Rickett, contributor to Vice World News. I spoke to the guy who claims to be the sort of pioneer of luxury vaccine tourism. There is basically exclusive travel and lifestyle service called Knightsbridge Circle. Knightsbridge is sort of exclusive part of the central West London that kind of speaks of money and connections and the establishment. So that's the kind of world we're dealing with. So now, just to give you a bit of context, in the pre-pandemic world, the members of this club, they pay £25,000 a year and they're looked after by personal managers. And these personal managers have five clients and they take care of getting tables at fully booked restaurants, finding personal trainers, that kind of thing. The pandemic hit and the CEO, Stuart McNeil, tells me that what they then begin to deal with is COVID tests. And there was a real problem in Britain getting tests. And then it's also things like weight loss programs and therapy via Zoom, stuff like that. But when the vaccine comes into play, they basically use connections that they have in the UAE, particularly in two emirates in Abu Dhabi and Dubai, to set up a kind of system whereby if you are a member of this service, then you get flown out to Dubai or to Abu Dhabi, you get picked up by someone in a Bentley or a Range Rover, they drive you to the luxury villa that you're staying in, you have the first round of the vaccine and you get a choice, you can have the AstraZeneca vaccine, you can have the Pfizer vaccine or you can have the Sinopharm vaccine, the Chinese vaccine. So you get one shot of that and then you spend the next three weeks or longer in your luxury villa and then you get the second shot and then you come home. And the way they do this, they're using their connections that they have in these other countries in the UAE, supply them these vaccines. But these vaccines are meant for the locals that are there. At some point, they're missing out on these. I can't say that I've seen a lot of reports saying that Emiratis are missing out, although people, residents of both Abu Dhabi and Dubai have told me that they haven't been vaccinated. I spoke to a private medical provider, a a sort of private insurance company like you would have in the United States in Dubai, who told me that they don't have a vaccine, that no companies like them have a vaccine. And so the vaccine is coming from what we would consider to be the public provision. There's been a bit of a flip on this because the public vaccine in the Emirates is the Sinopharm vaccine, the Chinese vaccine. But I understand that the ruling families there have been given the AstraZeneca vaccine. Different vaccines are available if you have the right connections. And what Knightsbridge Circle 
their CEO, Stuart McNeil, tells me he looks after the top families there. Now, the top family in Abu Dhabi is the Al Nayan family. Mohammed bin Zayed, the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, is well known. He's a very important person in the Middle East. He's Mohammed bin Salman's mentor, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia, the man who the CIA believes orchestrated the killing of a journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. There's a lot of power, there's a lot of connections, and it turns out that if you're a celebrity from Britain or Russia or from North Africa or any other part of Europe, you can go to the UAE with this company and you can get a vaccine through these connections. For their part, though, they do say that they're only doing this for their older club members. They are at least trying to be 65 and older, that type of thing. It's fair to say this. The CEO of another leading lifestyle concierge said, I can't see us getting involved, as I'd say it's morally questionable. McNeil, the CEO of Knightsbridge Circle, said to me, I have to weigh up the balance between making lots of money and being able to sleep at night. So I'm not going to get a vaccine for a 35-year-old who wants to go to the gym. And to be fair to them, and we can roll our eyes, but it's what you say is true. It's only people of a certain age. Oscar Rickett, contributor to Vice World News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much. At this phase in the pandemic, we're seeing California and other states begin rolling back some of their strict coronavirus restrictions, even as new COVID strains are beginning to circulate. New cases and hospitalizations are declining, and it's causing governors like Gavin Newsom to let some businesses open at limited capacity again. Some say politics may be at play since he's facing a recall effort, but Newsom says that has no merit. For more on states easing their restrictions, we'll speak to Emma Court, health reporter at Bloomberg News. We are seeing states starting to loosen some of those COVID precautions at this time. You know, we've been in the biggest surge of COVID-19 for a long time now. And as those national numbers are starting to come down, we're seeing Case counts declining, hospitalizations coming down, the trajectory of the pandemic appears to be easing. We're seeing states rightly take action and say, we think we can allow some kinds of economic activity to restart. For instance, in Illinois, you know, saying after months of not allowing indoor dining that, you know, indoor dining can resume in in Chicago and suburbs. But, you know, it is a difficult balance to strike because on the one hand, you do see these encouraging signs when it comes to the data. On the other hand, we do know that there are some worrisome indicators on the horizon, including the emergence of these new variants, which bring with them, you know, we know that at least one of these variants is more transmissible than the kind of current dominant strain of the coronavirus. But the other concerning aspect of this status quo is the fact that we know the vaccine rollout has been lagging behind expectations. And of course, the vaccine is kind of that key critical tool in terms of being able to promote immunity in the population and, you know, ward off further spread of disease. On that front, real quick, the CDC released some numbers. They said that about 45 million or so vaccine doses have been sent out, but really maybe 23 to about 25 million vaccines have been administered. So we're still playing from behind there. And the United States has a population of 331 million. So a long, long way to go on that front. We also know this is a vaccine where, you know, it remains to be seen, but we've we've heard a lot about hesitancy among Americans, people being concerned, maybe they were 
develop too quickly and, and, and being worried about things like anaphylaxis, you know, these severe allergic reactions, which have been reported in the context of these vaccines, but are, as far as we know so far, extremely rare. So there are factors around the vaccine rollout that still remain to be seen in terms of how successful it'll be. And we know there have been a a number of logistical issues in terms of just getting those doses to the sites and getting them in people's arms that are still kind of being worked out at the moment. Let's talk a little bit about California, obviously a huge state the governor there, Gavin Newsom, had these stay-at-home orders, restaurants, and he closed outdoor dining at restaurants. was a huge thing for local restaurants and businesses. So now we're seeing caseloads go down, hospitalization go down, and these restrictions are being loosened up. There's still a lot of people that say, hey, wait a minute, we could be moving too fast. Going back to that balance again that we've been talking about, there's a lot of other people saying, well, politics was playing a role in this. Governor Gavin Newsom is facing a recall effort And that effort has almost the amount of signatures they need to put it onto the ballot. So some people were saying politics was playing a part in this as well. And of course, Newsom has denied that politics are playing a role in this. The state has been pretty firm in saying this is based on the numbers we have, right? The case numbers, factors like declining hospitalization and test positivity rates, and this expectation that the availability of intensive care beds is going to improve. So that's what we're definitely getting out of the state. I think what's really interesting about California and has been kind of a consistent factor throughout this pandemic has been that California is almost sort of stupefied experts in terms of why has the situation in California been consistently so concerning, even though California famously early to impose restrictions, quick to take the kinds of measures we've heard experts advocate for. And it's led some people to think maybe the issue isn't the measures that the state has taken, but more this question of adherence to those measures. And specifically, are these measures so strict that people have decided, you know what, you say I can't eat outdoors at a restaurant. Well, I'm going to go gather in my friend's apartment and without a mask and we'll all get sick there. I mean, obviously that wasn't the intent. I live in California and anecdotally, I can say that's kind of true. People have been driven in and they are still gathering with their family members. And we know that these are these points of transmission. So yeah, I I would say that, like I said, anecdotally from what I hear, that has happened. And that's been the problem that COVID fatigue that we've talked about before is so huge right now. And people are just wanting to get back out there. And even for the restaurants themselves, that's such a huge point for local businesses. They're just hemorrhaging money right now, staying closed and even being at limited capacity, doing outdoor dining. Maybe they're not making profits, but at least they're not losing those vast amount of money. So that's where this kind of thing has been lying at. It's been tough for a lot of people. And the point you raise, I think, is a really, that sort of anecdotal, those stories is an interesting one. I spoke with a public health expert who said, you know, we know from other kinds of diseases like HIV, for instance, or other diseases where you can impose different kinds of approaches to trying to prevent it or or stave it off that, you know, encouraging this idea of like abstinence only, like almost like insects, like that you should just not do anything at all doesn't work as well as trying to mitigate risk, you know, different levels. And so he said, you know, California took this approach They definitely needed to recalibrate what they were doing. Whether this new approach is going to work, though, depends a lot on whether the state has good contact tracing data to say, we know people, for instance, are gathering in private households and getting sick. And he says, we haven't actually seen that data. It hasn't been made very transparent by 
California. So it'll kind of remain to be seen whether this new approach works. And as adherence to the guidelines, the social distancing, the mask wearing, that's where we're getting conversations of like, should people be double masking? Should we be triple masking? You know, that was kind of uh, hitting the storylines this week, just as these restrictions are starting to loosen and people want to get out there. Should we protect ourselves more with masks now? So this is all kind of rolled up into it. And those are key things that we need to do as we start going back to business. Right. And I think another really important aspect of seeing states relax these measures is also looking at what they're doing in terms of relaxing these measures. So this week, we also got a report from the CDC, which said that school reopenings could be done safely if you took all the right precautions and also if you took steps to make sure transmission in the community at large was minimized and was as controlled as possible. And so when you're talking about, for instance, in Illinois reopening indoor dining and restaurants, it is an interesting question of, well, what about the schools? You know, are we taking all of the same kinds of, are we relaxing all the same kinds of measures we relaxed before? Are we trying to do this smarter, do this in a, in a way that could have more impact, you know, in terms of social and educational programs. Emma Court, health reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And now a cool space story. Houston-based company Axiom Space is planning to send private citizens to the International Space Station next year. And on Tuesday this week, they revealed who will be making this historic trip. A former astronaut will serve as commander and three wealthy men who each paid $55 million for their ticket on the SpaceX Dragon. For more on what these citizen astronauts are in for, we'll speak to Christian Davenport, reporter at The Washington Post. I mean, this would be a historic moment. It's scheduled for early next year, around January 2022. As you mentioned, it would be the first space flight to the International Space Station comprised entirely of private citizens, no professional astronauts in the group, although they will be accompanied by Michael Lopez Alegria, who is a former NASA astronaut. He's now retired, though, and he works for this company, Axiom Space. So you've got Eitan Stibbe, Mark uh, Passy, and uh, Larry Connor, all very wealthy individuals, businessmen, who saw that they could now have the opportunity to fly to space and spend eight days on the International Space Station. Now, this is a new thing for NASA. Back in the 90s and the 2000s, in that time frame, there were a handful of private citizens that flew to the space station on the Russian spacecraft, on the Russian Soyuz, but NASA, they forbade the practice. And in 2019, former NASA administrator Jim Bridenstine reversed that policy, paving the way for private astronauts to fly to the space station. And this will be the first crew. Axiom hopes to fly as many as two of these flights a year, but this would be the very first one. But that's the way we've been trending, right? We've been seeing all these companies developing shuttles, you know, already launching satellites, all this stuff, and also working on sending private citizens into space for some time. You know, everybody knows the names, obviously, Elon Musk, Richard Branson, uh, Jeff Bezos himself, all developing these types of things. And even for Axiom Space, you mentioned they're planning two trips a year, but they're also saying that they want to develop their own space station, something that NASA could use too. So they're planning really big. 
Let me tell you, it's a great time to be a space reporter. There's so much going on. You mentioned the billionaires. I call them in my, my book, The Space Barons. It's such an exciting time. And people forget that up until last year when SpaceX, Elon Musk, company, which, you know, under contract from NASA to fly not just cargo and crew to the space station, but to fly astronauts to the space station. They had their first mission last year for NASA. That was the first time astronauts flew to the station from United States soil since the space shuttle was retired in 2011. So that was a big deal. They've got a few more missions of flying NASA astronauts, government astronauts, but this too, they're opening up their portfolio to include these private citizens, these tourists. And as you mentioned, Axiom is sort of brokering the deal. They'll do the training, but Axiom itself wants to build their own private space station that ultimately, you know, would replace the International Space Station, which has been up there for 22 years. I mean, it can't be up there forever. Let's talk a little bit of money with all of this. Obviously, they're spending $55 million a ticket. NASA's cost for lodging, I guess, is $35,000 a day per passenger for food storage and communication. You know, NASA's getting their cut, at least for this so they can go to the International Space Station. Are they going to be working there, doing anything? Is it just a vacation for them? How's that going to play out? So they say they want to go up and be industrious and not just be spectators. And so they're working. All three of these guys, I mean, they've got clearly a lot of money. They're philanthropists. You know, that's part of what they do. They want to partner with local hospitals in their communities, local educational institutions, and do sort of STEM education from up there. Uh, They know, too, that because they're the first crew to do this, there's going to be a lot of attention paid to them. And I I think part of the concern is that they'll be seen as dilettantes. They'll be seen as not belonging and sort of getting in the way of the professional astronauts. And so they want to be taken seriously and do real work on there. I mean, but then again, I mean, who are we kidding? You pay $55 million (laughs) for a ride to space. You should be able to, I'm sure they're going to want to enjoy it and spend some time, you know, doing the somersaults and staring out the window (laughs) and that sort of thing too. What's been the reaction from these guys about risks? Obviously, you know, astronauts train for so long to go do this. They're going to be working, you know, on the space station, all that. But for these guys, you know, what do they say about the risks? And that's something that I was curious about when I interviewed them and pushed them on that, because I think, you know, a lot of times spaceflight gets romanticized. And the fact of the matter is it is really risky. It is really dangerous. They seem to be aware of that. I mean, particularly Eitan Stibe, he's a former Israeli Air Force fighter pilot who served alongside Israel's very first astronaut, Ilan Ramon, who was killed in the 2003 Challenger disaster when the space shuttle Challenger came apart. I'm sorry, uh, Columbia. So they know the risk and they seem to be well aware of it. But, you know, if you go back in history in the space shuttle, I mean, it was called the shuttle for a reason. They wanted it to be like a normal routine service to space. And uh, NASA had a program where they were looking for private citizens to go and initially opened that up to a teacher, Krista McAuliffe. And when the shuttle uh, Challenger exploded in 1986, They decided to shut down that program and to keep it for professional astronauts only. So I think these guys, they're aware of the history and it's something they're taking seriously, but you never really can be prepared for it. Christian Davenport, reporter at The Washington Post and author of The Space Barons. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment. Give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.